Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Christy Perez. Christy is the founder and executive director for Inspire Life Skills Training, an organization in Corona, California that helps young people aging out of the foster care system transition into adulthood. Well, hello, Christy. Welcome to the Aging Out Institute podcast series. I'm so happy to have you here with us today. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for having me, Lynn. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm so glad you could make it. Why don't we go ahead and find out a little bit about yourself? And if you could please explain, how is it that you are connected with the foster care system? Sure. So I am a wife and mom, and I was home with my littles. I had twin daughters um, that were in kindergarten at the time. And my former husband was a social worker for the county. And he would tell me about cases that he had where the students were like 16 to 18. And they really desired to go to college, but there was no financial support for them or, you know, just even emotional relational support for them to do that. And here in California, there's not really housing for community colleges. And unfortunately, most foster kids don't go directly to a four-year university where they would have housing. So it just kind of stirred in my mind for a while, like, gosh, that just doesn't sound fair. I'm um, pretty much just like a really justice-minded person. And so I thought, well, these kids need an opportunity. And so I'm going to have all this extra time on my hands. I thought, you know, when my twins go to school full-time, so I'm going to start something and really had no idea what it was going to become and what the journey it was going to take me down for the last 15 years. So I just started with like basically mentoring a couple of girls and providing them with school books through raising money like from friends and stuff. It was it was a small little operation right out of my house. And then I realized pretty quickly that housing was the biggest component of need that, you know, it's really tough to mentor somebody that's not stably housed. So that kind of threw me into the whole like, oh, we have to get a house. And it's just kind of evolved from there. And at this point in time, we have five homes plus other students at four-year universities that we support. Wow. So you say that you decided to start something 15 years ago. So 15 years ago is when you started your organization. And is that or was it called Inspire Life Skills Training at the time? Mm -hmm. It was. It just didn't have as many components back then. Wow. So over the time you've been growing and you're up to five? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've added a lot of programming and houses and some staff. And yeah, so we're up to five homes right now. And then we have another new program called Inspired Scholars in which former foster youth attending four-year universities can apply to us. And we do online coaching with them each month to offer that, you know, emotional support, but we also give them financial stipends each month. Wow. And how many youth are you working with right now? A total of 27. Well, we have 23 spaces in the house, in the houses and four spaces for inspired scholars. Okay. And how large is your organization insofar as like, what is your region and how many staff do you have to work with those 27 youth? Pretty small. We are in the Inland Empire of Southern California. 
However, students can come to us from other counties. We are completely privately funded, so we are not we don't have like a county contract that we have to stick to a certain county. And right now we have just as of Monday, three staff that work with the students more directly and one programs assistant that helps in the office. And she does do some things with the students, like helps them with job applications and things like that to kind of get her feet wet with working with the students. But we have a brand new male case manager that just came on with us. And then um, myself and a resource developer. And so for the past like 11 years, the resource developer and I have been wearing just a ton of hats and doing a lot of different things. So we're really excited to bring on this male case manager to take the boys' houses off of our plate. And also just because the boys really need that mentoring from a man. Absolutely. That is that is so important. And so it sounds like you work with both young men and young women, correct? Yeah. At first, it was for the first four years, it was just young women. And then we opened our first boys' house in 2009. Oh, okay. And so help me understand when a young person, do they apply to come in? And then once they are in your program and they're accepted, what does their experience look like? Yes. So they do apply. They can find out about us through social workers. Uh, We do outreach to some of the high schools through their counselors. A lot of word of mouth. Our, Our students tend to talk about the program that they're in and they share it with other students. So we also get them directly through the colleges if they know the counselors or our current students. So yeah, we have an application on our website and an interview process because we're really looking for students that are motivated not just to attend school because we are an education focused program. That's probably something that sets us apart from other programs is that we do believe that education is one of the major keys to breaking the cycle of abuse and poverty. So we do require that they're in some kind of school. It can be college, it can be a vocational program, it can be more of a apprenticeship for a trade, but it needs to be something that they're learning So we're looking for students that truly want to learn. They're not just like, oh, I'm going to say I go to school to get a place to live. (laughs) Secondarily, we're looking for students that are open to receiving advice and help. If I sit across from a student who's 19 and they know everything, they know it all, I'm like, wow, you know more than I do. So go out into the world and and do it, do your thing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And sometimes they do, you know, but we're looking for students that are open to accepting the help and being part of a community. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when they come in and they're accepted, they automatically are given a place to stay in one of the homes, assuming that you have an opening. I guess the, the acceptance is based on the beds that you have available. Yeah, unfortunately, so much of it is timing because it's really hard to keep a waiting list because they're a very transient population. So even if we try to call a student back that may be interviewed a month before, oftentimes we can't get hold of them. So sadly, a lot of it comes down to timing, like when we have an opening and when somebody happens to apply. That's one thing I wish could be different, but so far for 15 years, I haven't figured out how to change that. So they get a space in one of the houses, and then we start the process of, if they're not enrolled in college, that whole thing, doing FAFSA, getting enrolled in college, connecting them with the resources of their local college, teaching them about getting a job, going through the process of getting a job. So yeah, and then we also uh, connect them with a mentor who's a one-on-one volunteer who's just there to kind of be an encouragement, but also to be an accountability type of partner. 
So yeah, a lot, a lot goes on when they first move in. We tried not to overwhelm them with too much information, but um, we also want to make clear our expectations and that it's a voluntary program. You know, they're choosing to be there and we're choosing to have them and we hope it's a good match. Sure. And these are young people who are out of the system. They've aged out at age 18 or is it 21 or do, would you have a specific age range that you work with? So they can come to us even if they have AB12. So they would get the funding usually from the county themselves, or there's some times where the social worker wants us to be the payee on the account. So they're accessing their money. And so they can still be under extended foster care and be in our program. Um, those kids obviously have it a little bit easier financially, but most students don't have that. So they can come in up to age 22, so 18 to 22, and they can come in at like say 21 and stay longer. They, they don't have to leave at 22. We just take them in by 22. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And for those who aren't familiar with the California system, AB 12, I assume is the, maybe a, an acronym for the extended foster care? Yeah, I, I think it was the actual bill. Ah, gotcha. The assembly bill. And it, yeah, it extends foster care for some people. When that went through, there was a lot of press that, oh, all foster care is extended to 21. And sadly, that's not the case. There's actually quite a few loopholes. And a lot of our students fall in those loopholes and they don't get that money. Mm, I see. And the volunteers that you have who are the mentors, you have 27 youth. Does that mean you have 27 different mentors or do you have mentors who work with multiple youth? It's one-to-one except for the inspired scholars. They don't have mentors. They just have me. (laughs) So they do their mentoring with me. And then the other students do have volunteers. And they're just from, um, you know, the the local communities, churches, different places. Like I'll go speak at different service clubs or organizations or churches and talk about that being, you know, a possibility for volunteerism. Um, We don't need a ton of volunteers because they do stick with their student the whole time. And our students stay, you know, up to five years. Our average stay is about two years. Hmm. So it is a commitment. And so we want them to be there for the long haul. And what's amazing is that some of our mentors have even become grandparents. I called grandma and grandpa to the, you know, the alumni's babies and stuff. So it's really cool to see how those relationships can really develop over time. Sure, I can imagine. I know that one of the things that I hear a lot is how difficult it is to find mentors. Do you find that you have any problems keeping those mentor positions filled? I know a lot of people are like, well, what's the secret? (laughs) What do you do to keep those slots filled? Yeah, I'd say the bigger struggle is male mentors. And I get it because oftentimes, you know, they barely have enough time for their families um, if they're working full time and their kids are in activities or whatever. So one thing that we have found that was not at all what I expected, you know, 15 years ago, sometimes your paradigms change, is that uh, retired men tend to do great with our students. And I used to think, oh, maybe the students won't connect with them. There's such a, you know, age gap, but that hasn't been the case. And so finding men that are like just retired and they're, maybe they retired early in their 50s or in their 60s, even some into their 70s, they have the time to give to the students 
And the kids tend to like listen to them. I know they're young adults, but sometimes I say kids. Sorry about that. But they tend to listen to them because it's more of like a grandpa figure than a parent. And so that has been one of our tricks that's worked well. But right now we are struggling to get some male mentors. We're low right now. And I don't know if it's just because of COVID and people are reluctant to take anything else on, which I understand. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the need for the male case manager, because I feel like he'll be able to fill in more with those students. Mm-hmm. And how do you match the mentor with the youth? Do they have a say in who they're matched with? Or do you try to match the older men with the young men? How, how is it that that works? Um, the students do not have a say. Um, it's something that our mentor coordinator, she meets with the potential mentors, does their paperwork, their interview. We do some like interest sheets to kind of see, you know, what they're, what they like to do for hobbies or how they fill their time, what they're interested in. And just, you know, those conversations and then getting to know the new student because they're also new to us, trying to kind of vet out what's important to them and what they like to do to fill their time. Because with the boys, it needs to be a little bit more activity-based. They're not like women who are like, let's just go have breakfast and talk. You know, they kind of might want to share an activity or do something alongside of each other to talk. So um, we do our best to try to match that up. But unfortunately, there isn't like a plethora of men waiting to mentor for us to choose from. But we can sometimes just tell personality style and if we think that they'll blend together well or not. And sometimes we're wrong. Oh, I was saying some, sometimes we're wrong and we have to say, okay, that one didn't work out. And we, we do have the students tell us how they're feeling about the match. And if we want to, you know, try something different, that happens occasionally, not too often though. Yeah. I just had an idea about where you might be able to find some male mentors, barbershops. Oh, yeah. In fact, there's one right across the street from my office. I don't know why I never thought of that. You would have to probably just strike up a friendship with the owner and maybe have the opportunity to share with the folks who are there now and then go in and talk to the gentlemen who are getting their hair cut or, I don't know, flyers. It's just a thought. No, that's a great thought. That's a great thought. And there literally is one right across from our office. I will definitely have to go in there and <laughs> feel it out. One thing you just mentioned, and I've always found to be true as well, is young people really do seem to open up more when you're doing something with them. And, and even young ladies too, but I know what you're saying. They, they're more likely to just sit and talk. But I know that if you're, you know, you're tossing a ball mm-hmm. with a young person or working on a garden or whatever the case may be. It just seems that the young people are more willing to talk than if you're just sitting face to face in chairs across from them. <laughs> totally. And especially especially on Zoom right now, that's been challenging, keeping those connections when you're just staring at each other on a screen. Yes, very good point. That would be more challenging, definitely. So let me back up a little bit. So you have the young people come in. They're given a place to stay. They're assigned a mentor. And then you also help them connect. If they aren't already, you help them connect with an education program, correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay. And is there somebody in these houses who live on site to keep an eye on things? Or are they really independent in their homes? And then you have somebody like your case manager check in on them. Right. So our first house, I did not have anybody there. And talk about a learning curve, right? So- <laughs> 
there were definitely some situations where I was like, what have I got myself into? And then it dawned on me, huh, maybe I should mimic like what colleges do and put a resident advisor in each house. Mm -hmm. So that's how that was born. (laughs) And so, yes, each house has an RA. They're not paid staff, which I think is important for our youth because they don't feel like they're in a group home. They're not like being overseen by paid staff. Um, this person is just a peer model. They come and go as they please. They work, they go to school, they may be doing their master's or something. Ah. So it's usually kind of a win-win situation. And they do have, you know, roles and responsibilities as far as like keeping the chores rotated, checking off that they're getting done. Mm-hmm. Um, they do have to do write-ups if kids have broken any of the the house rules, which there aren't that many, but sometimes they'll break them. And they also help to do uh, a house meeting once a month and kind of keep the lines of communication open. We're trying to get them to talk about celebrations and what's good, not just what's going wrong, you know what I mean, or what they need to work on. Trying to bring in just that sense of community. And then Inspire also gives money to each house RA once a quarter for them to go out and do a house activity together, just again, for some community building. And so the students do get to kind of vote on what they want to do. So the RAs tend to stay a couple years. It's a tough job. It's a tough unpaid job, I should say, because they have to strike that balance of being an authority, but also being friendly and, and, you know, a place where the students would want to come and talk to them about issues going on or whatever. So talk about a training ground for life. You know, (laughs) I feel like the RAs that come in, they're so equipped for marriage and families and things like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why would a young person, and I'm assuming that, you know, maybe they're typically younger, why would they do that for no pay? What kind of, you said they sometimes are master's students, are they social work students trying to get experience? I mean, what, what are the different types of reasons that they want to do this? Yeah, they just have to have a heart for the ministry is really what I'm looking for. You know, sometimes I'm sure the, the no pay is attractive, like they want to get out, like maybe they've graduated from college and they don't want to move home. They don't have money for an apartment. I'm sure some of those factors play in, but ultimately they have to want to pour into the lives of these young adults. And that's, you know, obviously what we're looking for. So, I mean, I'm sure they have different reasons for doing it, but that's what I'm looking for is that there is some desire to build community and connections. And is your program at all affiliated with any church? Not one church in particular. We have a few that support us, which is nice, but no, we're, uh, we're a public charity. Okay. Now, you say you help young people up to the age of 22, the oldest that they could be to be accepted, I gather. Yeah, we've had some say like till 26. <laughs> like, what, you're going you're to have kids in here? But <laughs> yeah, so... That's when they come into us later. Right, right. So one of the things that I come across a lot is, especially when I'm seeing groups I belong to in Facebook of foster care alumni, young people who are 25, 26, 27, and they're still struggling, or maybe they've come upon some hard times, and they're looking for some kind of assistance, Mm -hmm. right? That, you know, I was in foster care, I aged out. You know, I'm really struggling. I'm 26. I've, you know, I'm past the age of any kind of assistance that foster care programs usually give. Do you have any thoughts on how communities, how the system, you know, how can we better support these young people throughout their 20s? Because I feel like once they're 30, you know, maybe they've hopefully, fingers crossed, they've kind of gotten things under control. But it's just something that I, I wrestle with is what can we do? I'm just wondering if you've ever thought about that. 
I have thought about it, and sometimes I think that the um, emergence of extended foster care may cause more of that because they are pretty much taken care of by the system until 21. So then it gives them a bit of a later start into adulthood. So I think that's why maybe at 26, 27, they may still be struggling. I don't have the answer of what to do with the older ones besides like, you know, hopefully the community is coming together and offering better jobs and things like that. But I think that it starts back younger and like really preparing foster students for being adults. And I think, unfortunately, even when I've done workshops with like, you know, 14 to 18 year olds, they don't really want to listen or they have a pie in the sky thinking, well, I'm just going to go get my own apartment when I age out. And I'm like, okay, like, let's talk through the reality of that. And they don't really want to see the, the truth of the situation and how challenging that would be. But I think that the social workers and the foster parents, like everybody together needs to work at a, with, a, with the students at a younger age to prepare them for the realities of life. And unfortunately, I've been to some conferences or special events for foster kids where the social workers sometimes pump it up like, oh, you're going to be independent. You're going to have this and you're going to have that. And they think it's just going to come so easily. And I understand that they're trying to encourage them to be, you know, excited into adulthood. But I think that some of the reality is lacking. And I'll talk to students like when I go to the high schools, and I'll say, hey, you know, wh where are you going to live? Do you want to look into our program? And they'll be like, oh, no, I'm just going to get my own place. And then sometimes those students call me six months later and they're like, oh, yeah, like I can't really do that, especially in Southern California. So I think just having those realistic conversations from a younger age, maybe then when they're in their younger 20s, they're preparing better and they're starting to get better jobs. Yeah, that's kind of what I can think of to try to prevent that. And then the community is coming together to try to give the older young adults better jobs and better opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe some kind of pipeline, if you will. I don't people use that in a bad way, but really just if you're in foster care to have programs that help you transition into a job with some support mm -hmm. to help you learn how to be an employee. Yeah, well, that, that's a training that we do. We're really focused on how to help them be great employees and hold their jobs and move up. Mm -hmm. But also that's, again, going back to the education piece for us, why education is so crucial. Because if they don't have any vocational certificate or any trade or any college degree, you're right. At 26, 27, they may be in the exact same spot that they were in at 18, 19. Mm -hmm. So that's why we are constantly reminding our students yeah, I know you can go work at Amazon for 15 bucks an hour. And that feels like a ton of money right now. But in eight years, you're still going to be right around there. Or you can focus more on your education and make some sacrifices right now. And then in eight years, you're going to be in a completely different position. Right, exactly. So it sounds like you don't necessarily, I don't want to say push, but guide young people to go into college, that you're open to, you know, college, the trades, you know, maybe whatever would be the right choice for that young person, right? Yeah, I would love to see more of our students go into trades. They don't tend to want to. We have a donor that has an HVAC company, and he is willing to completely take in one or two students at a time, teach them the HVAC trade, and they can make some great money, great money. But I don't really have students that want to do that. <laughs> and I, I wish I did. And why do you think that is? 
I know that it's not glamorous (laughs) to go in that direction. And I know that it's work, right? You have to actually, you know, you're thinking about getting your hands dirty, if Mm -hmm. you will, Mm -hmm. that kind of approach. Is it because the schools don't paint it in a good light? Because that's the other thing I wrestle with. I follow Mike Rowe, and I think he's really great as far as being an advocate for the trades. Um, But what what do you see as far as why the young people don't want to go down that road? I think that the community colleges, at least in our area, are turning a tight on that, and they are offering a lot more, they call them CTE courses. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's good because the students may have, heard the messaging from a young age, like, oh, be the first in your family to go to college. You really should do this. And that's great, but not all kids are cut out for traditional academia. And so if the trades are on the college campuses too, hopefully they still feel like they're part of that college experience, but they're learning a trade. So I think part of it is perception and just like what they've been told. Yeah. And that's my guess. And part of it is that they may not want to have to get dirty and and work, you know. Mm -hmm. But sadly, the reality is that a lot of our students are missing a lot of academic building blocks. Yes. And so their goals and their desires are not always going to take them all the way to the finish line. And that's when it's the most heartbreaking, Mm -hmm. when they have the drive, but they don't always have the ability. Mm -hmm. And so having those hard conversations with students after maybe they've had three failed semesters of college, and it's like, okay, let's look into some other options. You know, we still want you to be living with us. What can we look into? And that's sometimes where we find, you know, the auto tech or the cosmetology or early childhood education to be like a preschool teacher or things like that. So I wish there were even more options personally, but those are some of the things that we try to talk to them about. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I like that you have that flexibility that you can help a young person shift gears and stay in the same program. So you do help them with some career knowledge and skills. So help me understand your life skills program. Is this a program that you've built yourself? Yes. So we have life skills where we bring all five houses together twice a month. And so that's fun because um, we do hold it at a church in Riverside. The church is kind enough to provide a dinner for our students. So they're excited to see each other. So it's part social. And then there's always a topic. Before COVID hit, we were really focusing on building resilience and growth mindset. And because we find that most of the issues that we struggle with go back to that, the lack of Uh, resilience. And so just teaching them that they can still build those skills. And then during COVID, when that hit, we had to obviously switch gears and go to a Zoom platform. So thankfully, my other two staff people jumped on it and created an amazing job training program. And so that ran for four weeks. And then some of the other major topics that we try to focus on are like health and wellness, financial literacy. We always do a spring cleaning each year to teach them how to really deep clean their houses. We'll also just do some fun things, you know, just some community building things. But we try to hit a good, like, I don't know, six to 10 topics a year. And it's all stuff that they need that's pertinent to their age and getting ready to be completely on their own. Mm -hmm. Do you have any tie-in with your mentors? So in other words, uh, the mentors know what that you've just covered in life skills training and that they can reinforce then? Sometimes, yeah, through emails or like our mentor training. Like we have a, a mentor training tonight. Um, And then we're going to teach the same topic to the students next week. So we do try to keep them aware of what we're teaching the students and how they can kind of back that up in their time together. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I could see that as definitely being helpful to have that reinforcement because just sitting in a workshop and then leaving, I know at least from my own career experiences, you don't always retain much. <laughs> yeah, and they may not always. <laughs> well, you've mentioned COVID-19 and we're still in the midst of it. I know at least from what I've heard, California may still be under some of the stricter lockdown regulations. I know in Pennsylvania, they're just starting to loosen those up in the eastern section here where we are. But where are you with that? Are you still meeting the young people through Zoom? And do you know how long it's going to be, if so? I think that um, next week is going to be our last Zoom session, which I'm so thrilled. We just got the clearance the other day from the church that we meet at, that we can go back and start meeting there because we're just a group of like maybe 20, you know, because not every student makes every class. So I'm super excited about that. So we have a session today and we'll have a session next Tuesday. And then I think we'll be back in business. And this is the first uh, week that I've gone back to picking up the students one-on-one and like taking them to breakfast or lunch to kind of do our check-ins. For a while there, we were just dropping food off at the porches And then maybe last month we started going into the house and checking in on them, you know, maybe with a mask on and stuff like that. So this is the first week where I feel some, some sort of getting back to normal. Oh yeah. Yeah. Good. And the mentors, I guess, have had to work with their young people remotely as well through technology. Yeah. We've kind of allowed them to do what they're comfortable with. So we did have like one mentor was taking her student to a job interview still. And we're like, well, if you're comfortable with that, you know, we try not to micromanage those relationships too much. We do have some guidelines, but luckily all of our students are adults. And so we don't have to be as strict as if they were minors. Right, right. Okay. Well, I'm glad that things are getting back to, to normal mm-hmm. for you. And if it's if that's the case for you, then I'm going to guess that it's the case for a lot of programs. So I'm really glad to hear that. We're still keeping it small. Yeah, like we usually do a big summer barbecue with all the mentors, the board of directors, the students, the families of, you know, the mentors. So this year we did cancel that because it was going to be in two weeks and we're just going to do a simple catered dinner and cornhole tournament with the students, just the staff and the students. (laughs) Something so fun to get the students together, but we're not going to include everybody. Yeah. Before I move on um, to a couple of my final questions, I did want to ask about the Inspired Scholars program that you have. How is their experience different, other than having you as a mentor, <laughs> how is their experience different than the other young people? Well, so it's a new program. We're just one year in, and so we're still uh, figuring that out. I mean, they're welcome to come to um, events if, if they're around, like our uh young man that's at UC Santa Barbara, he did come to our Christmas party in December. So that was really cool to be able to see him in person. But their experience is different in the fact that they just don't have quite the sense of community. We really encourage them to get involved in things at their school so that they ha- they're getting some connections that way. Um, and then they don't have their own personal mentor and they're not having the life skills classes. So they're definitely more removed. The three that we've had so far were a little older, further along in their college career. So if it was a brand new 18-year-old, I might have to look at how we adjust that and do some sort of one-on-one life skills with them. But since the ones that we've had so far have been a bit older, they've just been, you know, obviously grateful for the financial support and the coaching. Yeah. And do they have a room? Do they have a place to stay housing-wise with you or are they on campus primarily? Either on campus or like off campus apartments that we're helping to pay for. Oh, okay. 
Okay, I see. Well, I like that you're helping these young people. What motivated you to start this program specifically tailored to, you know, finances and coaching for young people from foster care in college? So I was thinking back to why I originally started Inspire. Have you, I don't know if you're familiar with Simon Sinek's Start With Why book. I have heard of that. Yeah, I had read that a couple years ago. And I thought, okay, let me take it back to my original why. And it was to give a program to kids that were resilient, but there was nothing for them. Back when I started it in 2005, you would hear of these kids aging out and they, because there was no extended foster care then, they'd be 18 out on either their graduation day or their birthday. And they'd want to go to school, but there was no resources. Well, since then, for 15 years, there's been additional resources. We used to be like one of two programs around. One was like a a homeless program and then ours. Now there's quite a bit of government funding that has become available. And there's even more government funding that's going to trickle down for homeless youth. And so I had to think through, okay, I don't really think that we need to grow another house even though we had the finances to do it, because I think that some of those needs are being met governmentally now. So how else can we you know, make an impact and be there for students that are resilient and are doing their thing that we can support? And so then it made me think, well, what if we found foster kids that are already at the four-year schools or they're transferring from a local community college to a four-year school and we can continue to grow that way? Yeah. I'm really glad that you decided to do that. And I'm sure the young people who are in the program are thankful as well. (laughs) Yeah. One of our girls just graduated from U of A and she got offered a great job in Atlanta to work for an accounting firm. And so I'm actually heading out there to visit my daughter. And so I'm also going to get to meet up with Emily as well. So that'll be really neat because I've only met her through Zoom. So that'll be awesome. Okay, definitely. Well, you certainly have an advantage in that so many universities out there in California have programs specifically geared to supporting young people from foster care. So I I would imagine that those young people who are in the Inspired Scholars program, I would think, would hook up with the university's program as well. Right. And so some of those kids may or may not need us. So that's, you know, we're always assessing who needs us the most. If they are getting all their needs met through like a guardian scholars program or something like that, then maybe we would choose a student that doesn't have that opportunity. So it just kind of depends on what the needs are. Right. Exactly. All right. Well, generally speaking, from your experience, and you've been doing this a while, what would you say are the most effective, impactful strategies that organizations like yours could implement to help young people coming out of foster care. I think of, you know, if you have somebody who's trying to start a program and they and they want to hear this advice from you, for example, what would you say? I would say for whoever is working with the students to continually learn and grow um, with like trauma-informed care, the resilience building, growth mindset, really working on the core of the issues that the students are going to have because of the trauma that they've experienced and really getting versed in that. I did not do that, I would say, until maybe eight years in. Like I had a cursory knowledge, but I was like not understanding maybe why certain patterns would repeat themselves, such as like self-sabotaging. You know, they may have two good semesters and then they just blow it. Like, well, what's that about, you know? So educating yourself about the psychological 
needs of the students and some of the cycles that they're going to go through. I would also say striking a balance between being a really positive, safe place where you're encouraging them, but also challenging them at the same time and holding the bar high enough where they feel like, wow, that's a little bit out of my range, but I want to try to reach it instead of just like, oh, well, let's just set the bar real low. You know what I mean? So that blend of encouragement and accountability and stretching them and then always teaching about money management and budgeting. They may or may not listen to you, but you can't, <laughs> you can't teach that enough. Going in and, and trying to teach younger foster students or maybe partnering with another organization that's doing that in your area about how to really prepare to be on their own. I just think that the kids that are prepared earlier do so much better. I'll throw a plug in there for Pockets Change, which is... Uh, an organization that I've interviewed, and they use what they call hip hop pedagogy to help teach uh, financial skills. Oh my gosh, that sounds cool. Yeah, it's it's one of the podcasts, and they partner with organizations. Right now, I believe primarily in New York and California, but it sounds like they could, by doing it digitally, they could connect with programs all over the country. So just something to throw out there to the listeners that pockets change is a, is a possibility for that. Yeah, I'm going to write that down for sure. That's great. <laughs> I'm always about trying to collaborate or look at new resources. Great. So yeah, I would say those are the keys. It's not easy work, but it can be really rewarding. So I think, you know, I do get those calls quite often. Oh, I want to start a program just like yours. And I'll always start by saying, we'll really do a needs assessment in your area because of the fact that there is so much more government funding now, it may not be needed. Um, you know, maybe if you just want to make an impact, you can go volunteer at one of those organizations. Not everybody has to start one. In fact, I didn't want to start one. I wanted to volunteer, but there was nothing in my area. So therefore I'm like, oh, I guess I'm starting this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the difference between you and some other folks is you, you felt the motivation to the degree that you're like, well, it has to be done. Yeah. So I guess I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. I did feel an intense drive that something needed to be here, but I would have been fine just volunteering or partnering along another organization. So that's always my first bit of advice is you don't always have to be the one to start it. There might be a program in your area doing amazing work. So see how you can join up with them. And maybe you have, you know, a skill or a program that you can bring to that organization without having to totally start your own nonprofit because it's not easy. I've had to teach myself along the way how to be an administrator, like everything, everything with running a nonprofit. There's a lot to it. And initially we just think, oh, I want to make an impact on these, you know, young people's lives. And that's true, but that's only a small piece of what you have to do if you're a director. Mm-hmm. Right, right, exactly. And there are a lot of hoops to jump through when you're a nonprofit too. There are, but that's why I'm glad that we're private because I don't have nearly as many as government funded <laughs> nonprofits. Ah, uh, true, true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Well, I tell you what, before I forget, because you say you do get calls from people asking, you know, what can I do? How can people contact you if they'd like to reach out to you and ask about your program? What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Sure. My email is Christy, which is K-R-I-S-T-I at inspirelifeskills.org. And we have created a business growth model. So if somebody wants to start a program like Inspire in their city, we have helped a couple other organizations get started. Ah. 
And so we do have like a consulting, you know, agreement that we can create where we are willing to share a lot of our paperwork, you know, so many contracts and policies and procedures that we've developed over the years. Um, And then one-on-one consulting with me or our um, resource developer. There is a fee for that, but gosh, if I had had that 15 years ago and not had to have created everything, I would have done it for sure. (laughs) What a fantastic service because I know that the paperwork, the forms, the you know, keeping track of this, measuring that, all of, if you have that paperwork that you can give as a package to a young organization, wow, what, what a great help. We don't do the 501c3 part of things. That's not our scope, but it's more on the programming. All right. That's fantastic. And what is your website address? Inspirelifeskills.org. That's right. I guess you said that as part of your email, of course. Wonderful. Well, I thank you so much, Christy, for being part of this interview, this whole podcast series. I've loved learning about your program, Inspires Life Skills, and I do wish you the best moving forward, getting back to your normal routine with meeting with your young people and your mentors, and uh, and I do wish you all the best moving forward. Wonderful. Thank you so much for letting me come on and share. Oh, you're very, very welcome. And for the listeners who have listened to the end, thank you so much for doing so. As I've said before, we try to put out a podcast at the very latest every two weeks, but generally every week we'll put one out there so you can look for another one coming out in just a week. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting. Any resources or research mentioned in today's podcast will be added to this episode's show notes at agingoutinstitute.org forward slash AOI podcast. If you have any suggestions for people or programs that you think we should highlight in a future podcast, please send an email with your ideas to podcast at agingoutinstitute.org. Finally, if you found this podcast to be informative or useful, we would greatly appreciate it if you would consider becoming a podcast-level patron on Patreon. For only $3 a month, you can help enable AOI to continue interviewing nonprofit leaders, social workers, and former foster youth well into the future. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash aging out institute. Thank you so much for considering it and thank you for listening. Until next time.